We now join a live Bible study from St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere, Missouri. Good morning. I'm Pastor Glenn Thomas, one of the pastors here at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere, Missouri. It's great to have you with us. We not only welcome the people here with us in our gymnasium, but we also welcome those listening on KFUO 850 AM and worldwide at KFUO.org. Today we'll be continuing our tradition of looking at the lessons for next Sunday. So the scripture lessons, the Old Testament epistle and gospel lessons uh, assigned for October 14. Let's begin with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord God, Heavenly Father, your blessings are new to us each and every day. And we thank you each day for your grace, your undeserved, unmerited love for us. And for all that that grace moved you to do, sending your Son to suffer and die and rise again on our behalf. Through him we have forgiveness and everlasting life. We pray your Holy Spirit's not only presence but also guidance and blessing this day as we continue in our study of your word. May we continue through his help to grow in our knowledge of you and of your will for us as your children here in this world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we dive into God's Word, a little commercial here uh, at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere this afternoon. We have a hymn festival, and this is the first event in our annual Music at St. Paul's series. It will be this uh, afternoon uh, at 4 p.m., and we'll have uh, a composer and guest organist feature today, Dr. John Bankin, Banky rather, I'm sorry, who is Professor of Music Emeritus at Concordia University in Wisconsin. And so we invite anyone within a reasonable drive of St. Paul's De Pere to join us this afternoon at 4 o'clock for that hymn festival. All right, for those of you here in the gym, there should be sheets over on the side that contain the scripture lessons that we'll be looking at, or you can simply take a look in the Bible. Uh, we're going to begin uh, with a collect for next Sunday, and that's, remember, that prayer that comes uh, usually right uh, prior to, immediately prior to the scripture lessons for the day. And uh, this one kind of does a good job, I think, of kind of bringing together, again, the thoughts for the day. So it says, uh, Lord Jesus Christ, whose grace always precedes and follows us, help us to forsake all trust in earthly gain and find in you our heavenly treasure. For you live and reign with the Father and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. And you kind of get that idea. First of all, God's grace, his undeserved, unmerited love for us. And you get a picture of it being out in front of us and it also following us. And when I read that, I couldn't help but think of Psalm 23, right? Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And in the Hebrew, it actually means to pursue or to run after you. And it's kind of the same thing here, that God's grace goes out in front of us and his grace comes after us. In other words, we're surrounded by God's grace as we walk through life in this world, his undeserved, unmerited love for us. And then it says, and here we come now to the kind of the nugget that's going to be the emphasis in the lessons, at least in the Old Testament and the gospel lesson. Help us to forsake all trust in earthly gain. Okay? So forsake or... Uh, discard any trust we might have in earthly gain or earthly riches, uh, materials, and so on. 
and to find in you our heavenly treasure. Okay? So before we have even read one of the lessons, we kind of get a hint that we're going to be talking about the contrast between storing up treasures on earth and tre true treasure in heaven. Okay? True value or true treasure in heaven. And we'll see that played out in especially the Old Testament and gospel lessons. All right, let's take a look at the Old Testament lesson then for next Sunday. And this is from the book of Amos, chapter 5. And we do a little skipping around, but we've got verses 6 and 7 and then 10 through 15. Let's read through the entire lesson, and then we'll go back and take a look at it in, in uh, greater detail. So verse 6, Seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph, and it devour with none to quench it for Bethel. O you who turn justice to wormwood and cast down righteousness to the earth, they hate him who reproves in the gate, and they abhor him who speaks the truth. Therefore, because you trample on the poor and you exact taxes of gain from him, you have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins, you who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe and turn aside the needy in the gate. Therefore, he who is prudent will keep silent in such a time, for it is an evil time. Seek good and not evil, that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you, as you have said. Hate evil and love good. Establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. All right. So let's go back and take a look. And just from reading that through, you kind of get this idea of the oppressors and the oppressed, right? That God's people, unfortunately, at this time are oppressing the poor. And there is an injustice that is taking place uh, from the haves to the have-nots, from the rich to the poor. But let's go back and start at verse 6. Seek the Lord, and the result would be that you live not only here, but of course eternally. And uh, we've got to say that this is written at a time, this is written, we think, about 750, 760 B.C. And so to put this in context, we still have both kingdoms. We've got the northern and the southern kingdoms. And this is about 30 to 40 years before Assyria is going to come, and God is going to use the nation of Assyria to wipe out the northern kingdom, to, to uh, conquer them and to literally take them over. And so we're in that period. And then uh, another 140 years, 586 or so, will be the final downfall of, of the southern kingdom. It's going to be afflicted before that, but the, the final end of the southern kingdom, and that'll be Babylon, who will come and take over the south. So, and again, both of these, God raising up these nations to bring judgment upon his people. So we're before either of those is going to happen. And so we get uh, a, uh, and yet we'll see at the end that there is hope at the end of this uh, lesson because God talks about a remnant, a faithful remnant that he is going to, to bring back, okay? 
Now, what are God's people at this time? Obviously, there is a great deal of wealth, okay? And they are oppressing, the wealthy are oppressing the poor. And things were going, at this point, very good for God's people. They, were, they had a prosperous uh, time. It is not quite, but almost as good as it was back in the old days of David and Solomon. They were quite powerful, quite wealthy. And they got to thinking that all of this wealth and all of the, this prosperity was a sign that they were in good with God. And God was very pleased with them. And it, they were looking ahead to the so-called day of the Lord to come because they thought God's going to come on that day and bring even greater things. And they were just so convinced by all their wealth and their prosperity that they were in good with God. And, you know, that was a common misunderstanding of God's people in Bible times. It was felt that if you were... Uh, very blessed materially that that was a sign that you were in good with God. And Jesus, after our gospel lesson, is going to make the, the statement that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for the rich person, the one with great possessions, to be saved. And the disciples panic and say, then who can be saved? Because, see, they had this understanding, this belief, that if you had a lot of money and a lot of riches, you were in good with God. And contrary, if you were poor, if you were needy, if you were oppressed, then that was a sign that things were bad between you and God. Now, what would we say about that today before we launch into this? Would we say because you are rich, because you are wealthy, therefore automatically that's an indication that you are in good with God and vice versa? No, no. And on the other hand, we have to be careful. Would we, say that the, would we say the opposite? That if you are wealthy and have a lot of money and a lot of material goods, that that means you're not in good shape with God? No. So these things, it's kind of a, it's kind of a tricky thing because as Christians, we would recognize and acknowledge that all that we have is a gift from God, right? That it is a blessing from Him. But that shouldn't move us to complacency, spiritually speaking, to think that just because we have these things, we are in good with God. And sometimes when we have a lot of material possessions and a lot of success, um, uh, earthly-wise, what, what are we tempted to do with God at times? Kind of keep Him at arm's length. You know, I, I, uh, things are going so great. It's sometimes when we're brought to our knees or when we have something really uh, tragic in our life that we are pulled back to realize how much we depend upon God, whether we have a lot or whether we have a little, okay? And we see that around us each and every day. All right, let's get back then. Verse 6, seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like a fire in the house of Joseph and it devour with none to quench it for Bethel, okay? So what does that sound like? Fire's going to break out and nobody can put it out. So seek the Lord or what's going to happen? Judgment is coming from God. And it's pictured here, the image that is used here is an unstoppable fire, an unquenchable fire against the house of Joseph. So we'll be talking about the northern kingdom at this point. And notice there that 
uh, none to quench it. Nobody is going to be able to put this out, this fire of judgment. And of course, that's because God is its source. And so no one is going to be able to destroy it or quench it. Uh, for Bethel, that's a great city in the north, their, their uh, capital city in the north. Okay? So a warning of judgment to come. Seek the Lord. Notice that God is telling them, seek the Lord. And so the idea is they are not. It's kind of an indication how far they are from him. Verse 7. O you who turn justice to wormwood and cast down righteousness to the earth. So God's people here, instead of practicing justice for the poor and the needy, notice they turn it into wormwood. Now, just without even knowing, does wormwood sound good or not? <laughs> you, don't even have to, you don't even have to look it up. It doesn't sound very good. Uh, I did look it up. It, it's a bitter, bitter plant, and it actually smells. It actually smells. You know, uh, speaking of smells, that, uh, that plant that is uh, at the Botanical Gardens, what is that thing called? It's blooming right now? The stink, stink plant? Yeah. It's at the uh, Botanical Gardens. Uh, we, didn't, we didn't time this to coincide with it, this lesson, but uh, it's the same kind of thing. You could act, it, it actually, this wood actually smells rotten, okay, is what I read. And so God is saying here, you turn justice, instead of practicing justice for the poor, you turn it, that justice into a rotten, stinking wood, okay? And just an image to use. And notice you cast down righteousness to the earth, or you kind of discard justice. You throw it down to the earth. You don't practice it. Okay? Uh, verse uh, 10. Now they, the they here is the oppressors. They hate him who reproves in the gate, and they abhor him who speaks the truth. Now, a little explanation here. The gate. We had about three times in this lesson a reference to the gate, which would be the city gate, the gate to the city. Uh, in ancient times, the cities often would be walled off for protection against attack, and they would have a gate through which people came and went, but the gate was also the place where there, was, there were hearings, where they would settle cases, where the elders to the city would be, and they would hear cases and settle them. So if you were oppressed uh, and treated unjustly, you could bring your case to the elders at the gate. It was sort of, sort of like the town, uh, what later on would become the town square. It was the place where people met, and it was the place, again, where cases were decided. So look at what he's saying there. They hate him who reproves in the gate. Or some of your, uh, if you have Bible, you may have a translation. They hate the mediator, or the one who mediates, or the arbiter, okay? at the gate. So the people who are oppressing, they hate the one who is actually there to settle the case because it goes against them at times. So they hate that person and they abhor him who speaks the truth. So you get the idea here, God's people are acting very unjustly and actually don't even want to know the truth. Uh, it's like that, uh, what's the movie, You Can't Handle the Truth? Uh, um, few Good Men, yeah, thank you. We got all kinds of illusions here today in the Bible class. Um, then verse 11, therefore, in other words, as a result of this, because you trample on the poor and exact taxes of grain from him, 
So what, not only are they oppressing the poor, but notice what they are doing there, that you exact taxes from him. Now, it, those of you who have a Bible with you, I wanted to take just a little uh, look. God had provisions in his plan for the poor and the needy. Uh, when the people would harvest their fields, some of you may know this already, they were instructed not to harvest it all the way to the edge of the field. They were instructed to leave some of the crop out there in the field for the poor and the sojourner or the traveler. Okay? This was built into God's plan. I'll show you this. Let's take a look uh, just for a second at Leviticus 19. Those of you that have a Bible, verses 9 and 10. Leviticus 19, 9 and 10. Leviticus 19, 9 and 10. Okay? So it says here, When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. So not only do you not harvest it to the end, you don't go back and if there's some laying on the ground that kind of got scattered when you were harvesting, you don't come and pick that up either. You leave that there, verse 10, and you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. Okay? So God had built that right in. Let's look, look at one more, just Leviticus 25. We'll stay in Leviticus 25. Oops. And we want to look here at verses 35 through 37. 35 through 37, Leviticus 25. If your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner, and he shall live with you. Take no interest from him or profit. So you don't charge him any interest. He stays with you. But, uh, but fear your God that your brother may live beside you. You shall not lend him your money at interest nor give him your food for profit. So see, God had it built in. This is what he had instructed his people to do, to care for the poor and the needy. By not only not harvesting your fields all the way to the end, don't pick up what's on the ground, don't take every grape out of the vineyard, including what has fallen on the ground. And if your brother becomes poor, you take him in, you don't lend him money at interest, you don't sell him food for profit, you simply help him, okay? Now, contrast that with what we've got here in the book of Amos. Uh, we just read verse 11. Uh, you trample on the poor, and you exact taxes of, of grain from him. So not only are they trampling on the poor, but, or, I'm sorry, they're, they're, not only are they not leaving grain there for the poor, but it's understood here that the poor are working, and they're taxing them as a result for the grain that they bring in. So again, this was totally contrary to what God had set up, okay? They are oppressing the poor, even the poor, for their own gain, okay? Um, and notice the ominous prediction that has come, that they built houses out of hewn stones. So what does that sound like? Uh, poor, uh, uh, real small houses? 
No, the hewn stone would be the wonderful stone. So they've they got luxury houses, okay? Other places in Amos, it talks about ivory couches that they're on, okay? But what's the ominous note there? You who live in hewn houses, what's going to happen? You will not live in them. So what, what's the implication? There's going to be, again, a judgment coming, right? You will not live in them. You know, you kind of, you got this beautiful house, you're not going to live in it. Uh, verse 12, for I know how, how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. And uh, could we say the same uh, in terms of God toward us today? God know how many our sins are? Yes, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, right? And the truth is not in us. However, when God looks at us through the lens of his son, Jesus Christ, what does he see? Does he see our sinfulness and our, our wretchedness? No. Sees us in the, being the righteousness of Christ, doesn't he? Just as if he is looking at his own son. Okay? So again, you who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe, so you get the, the crooked nature of God's people, uh, and turn aside the needy at the gate. So they don't even hear the case of the needy. They just turn them aside as if they don't matter. Uh, and there's kind of a, a play on verse, in verse 13. What does the prudent person do? What does the wise person do at this time? It says there they do what? They keep silent. And the idea is here that the wise person knows that it's just, it's maybe even dangerous to speak up at this time because you're going to be uh, uh, you know you're going to be on the receiving end of a whole lot of bad things if you bother to speak up so the prudent person or the wise person keeps silent do we as Christians sometimes feel that way today in our society in our world that it we're afraid to speak up uh, we might be afraid to put certain bumper stickers on our car right um, and, and so on because again uh, there might be retribution coming our way, physical retribution coming our way, or, or damage to our property as a result. And this is the way it was back then. You know, the wise person just keeps silent instead of speaking up, okay? It's an evil time, it says. Uh, there's kind of a play here. Uh, Seek good and not evil, that you may live, and the Lord God of hosts will be with you, as you have said. Now, notice it, it went good, evil. Now it's going to go evil, good. Hate evil, love good, establish justice in the gate. In other words, in that gate where the hearings are, establish justice there. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Oh, there we get a little glimmer of hope at the end. There's going to be a remnant of Joseph. God always in the Old Testament gave the promise that there would be a small, faithful remnant that he would work with. Yes, mass judgment is going to come. There's going to be destruction of the north and the south. There's also going to be a faithful remnant, a much smaller group, but God will work and continue to be faithful through them and eventually bring, a, bring about the Savior, the promised Savior, through that small remnant. So we end with a little glimmer of hope there at the end. And just think of that, as bad and as unjust and as oppressive as God's people are being at that time, God still remains with them and is going to be faithful with that small remnant. Okay? All right. 
let's stop just for a second and discuss today, how do we as a church uh, today, and it could be St. Paul's or it could be in, in bigger ways, how do we care for the poor? We had those instructions in the Old Testament. Uh, we don't instruct our farmers necessarily anymore to leave stuff out in the field and not to pick up what's, what's left on the ground in the field. But how do we, let's take first of all here at St. Paul's, do we do anything that would help the poor and the needy here at St. Paul's? Anybody know? What's an example? The, the food, yes, the food barrel that you will see in the back, it's actually in the narthex of our church on a weekly basis. Social ministry committee, uh, we have, in fact, they are meeting uh, Monday, I believe it is, and the social ministry committee here at St. Paul's receives requests for help, for aid, and at their monthly meetings considers them, and uh, most cases uh, does provide uh, help, whether that's monetary or uh, in some other type of assistance that is needed. Any others? Uh, we had a whole bunch of them in the back of church today for the first Sunday. Uh, they're going to be here for a few weeks. The shoe boxes in the back of church today, right? That effort starts. Uh, we are hoping to hit 500 of those shoe boxes that are uh, filled and sent off uh, really around the world so that poor and needy children can have a gift at Christmas. And of course, our gifts are not just uh, of a physical or material nature, but also the, uh, the, new, the good news of Christmas, right, is in there as well. We, we want to make sure that's in there, of God's greatest gift to us, his son, okay? Um, nationally, you know, one, one, of the, one of the advantages of being together in a synod, which is a group of churches, about 6,100 of them in the Lutheran Church of Missouri Synod, that choose to walk together, is to be able to do things collectively that we find very difficult to do individually or be very challenging to do individually. And one of the best ways that we do this is whenever there is a disaster, a natural disaster, uh, like a hurricane, a tornado, an earthquake, whatever it might be, uh, our national church body has disaster relief, a disaster relief department actually, that helps coordinate uh, aid to those places and actually have people on the ground there uh, helping and offering assistance to people who are at, in some cases, have seen their lives, their physical, uh, uh, all their physical possessions simply uh, removed, gone. And so, and there are many other ways. We get uh, people walking in here at St. Paul's, uh, uh, as do most churches, and, and asking for assistance. We do, I think, have a good system here in that the churches in the area uh, kind of uh, keep tabs of who is coming around and want to make sure that people aren't trying to take advantage, you know, going just going from one church to another. But we have the ability to help them, and, and it's actually through our social ministry committee that we do help them if there is a legitimate need there. Okay? So just to let you know, that's how we do this today, and we hope we are doing it in a way that is pleasing to the Lord and not dismissing uh, them, but actually helping. Okay? All right, any comments or questions before we move on to the gospel lesson? So you can see again this contrast between the, the rich storing up more and more riches, even to the point of oppressing the poor and being unjust to the poor, and returning to the Lord where true treasure is to be found. Any comments or questions? All right, let's go on to the gospel lesson then. And we are in Mark chapter 10. In our series here, series B, we are moving through the gospel of Mark. Okay? A is, series A is Matthew, B is Mark, C is Luke. 
And John gets sprinkled in, Gospel of John gets sprinkled in, uh, actually in all of them. So Mark 10, and we're going to look starting at verse 17, and we'll take 17 through 22. Let's read that through together, uh, the whole thing, and then we'll go back and uh, take a look at it. And as he was setting out on his journey, this would be Jesus, of course, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Okay, so here we get again the echo of the same theme. All right, let's go back to verse 17. He, Jesus, is setting out on a journey, and notice this young man, and Jesus had just uh, finished up with what we had at the, the uh, end of our gospel lesson for today. He had just taken the children in his arms and blessed them. Okay, Now he starts off on a journey, and here comes this guy. Now, do you, does this guy seem like he is legit? In other words, he's not trying. Do you, does, it, does it appear that he's trying to trick Jesus or test Jesus in any way? No, it doesn't seem that way. Not like the Pharisees in the gospel lesson for this week, right? Trying to, trying to test him. And notice he is, it seems, genuinely eager to have this conversation with Jesus. Notice he runs up to Jesus. He didn't just kind of casually bump into him. He runs up to Jesus. And then what else does he do that kind of shows that he's really earnest here? He kneels down before him. See that? So he runs up to Jesus, kneels down before him. So again, this, is, this guy is earnestly, sincerely wanting to hear wisdom from Jesus. And he asks him the $64,000 question, right? Good, good teacher, he tells him, calls him. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, as Lutherans, what happens when we, when we read that question? Our, our antenna go up, right? <laughs> this, this guy obviously was not a Lutheran, right? Uh, so we could, easily, we could easily respond back to this and say, Jesus could easily respond back to this right away and say something like, well, there's nothing you can do. And, uh, you know, uh, that's an impossible question. That's the wrong question to ask. He could have responded in many, many different ways. But Jesus, it seems, has a real interest in this young man. And notice he's going to, he starts by, he answers the question uh, uh, with a question. Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So what's Jesus almost asking him there, you know? If you're calling me good and only God is good, are you calling me God? You realize what you're saying there? And then he goes on. Jesus goes on. He doesn't even wait for the answer. He just goes on. You know the commandments. 
So this guy apparently was a, a learned young man. And notice, what commandment would Jesus, would you think, given a situation, what commandment would you think Jesus would start with? First commandment, you shall have no other gods. But notice what Jesus does. He goes with the second, we would call the second table of the law. He doesn't go to the first commandment. He goes to the second table of the law first. The command, all the commandments that deal with our relationship with our neighbor or people, yeah, others. Okay, so that's kind of curious. He says, you know the commandments. Do not murder. There's commandment five, right? Fifth commandment. Do not commit adultery. There's six. Do not steal. There's seven. Do not bear false witness. There's eight. Now, do not defraud. That's kind of interesting. We think it might be related to coveting, you know, ninth and tenth, the way we divide the commandments, nine and ten. Defraud, you know, I guess you start by, if, before you even defraud someone, you start by wanting what is theirs, what truly is theirs, and wanting to possess it yourself. But uh, he doesn't use the term covet. And then he circles back to four, honor your father and mother. It's kind of interesting that he puts that one last. He didn't take them uh, in the order that they were given in Exodus or in Deuteronomy. And l l listen to what the guy says, verse 20. And he, this would be the young man, said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. Now, uh, what could Jesus have said in response to this? I don't think so. I don't think so, young man, right? Now, do we have a lot of people today walking around on the face of this earth that would say the very same thing? All these I have kept from my youth, right? And they are basing their having kept these commandments by the fact that they haven't murdered someone, they haven't in their mind stolen from anyone, they haven't committed adultery, they think, uh, they haven't borne false witness against someone, they think, they haven't coveted, they think. Now, I'm saying they think, because remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, right? You have heard it was said, you shall not murder, you shall not kill. But I, and they would have, the hearers would have said, yes, we've heard that, that's the fifth commandment. But he says, but I say to you, he who is what? Is angry with his brother is guilty, right? Or you have heard it was said, do not commit adultery. And the hearers would have said, oh yes, we've heard that, that's the sixth commandment. Jesus says, but I say to you, he who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Right? So Jesus takes the standard from just the outward act, which is what they, and especially the Pharisees, were so careful to observe all the outward keeping of the law, and he lets them know, no, it's, it's even deeper than that. It's what's in your heart. So could this guy, if under that standard, could this guy have said, all these I have kept from my youth? I don't think so. <laughs> uh, be a rare, rare, rare person who hasn't been angry or broken the sixth commandment internally. Okay? But notice Jesus doesn't do that. He's much more gentle with this young man. He says, he's going to point out now his, his uh, problem. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. That's a, a curious statement. He, we don't see this elsewhere in the scriptures. He loved him, okay? And said to him, 
You lack one thing, or one thing, literally one thing fails you in the Greek. Um, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Okay? Disheartened, or you know, crestfallen, crushed by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. So what is Jesus pointing out to this guy without saying it in so many words? What is his God? His possessions. His possessions are keeping him from following with the heart Jesus Christ. So instead of saying point blank, you have a false God in your life, Jesus brings him to that realization uh, in another way. And, you know... It's probably good for us maybe to just pause here for a second and talk about, although the lesson was speaking about possessions and the, the treasures on earth getting in the way of following Christ, there can be other things in people's lives, can't there, that, that are in effect a God in their life and keep them from following Jesus. There is that one thing that they lack in their life. What would be some examples of some things that could be more important and keeping people, in other words, the things that they go to for their identity, the things that they fear, love, and trust instead of the one true God? What would be some examples in people's lives today? What's that? Sports? Yeah, sports could be. Uh, both uh, Playing sports or watching sports, uh, for me it's watching sports more now these days, <laughs> but could be, right? And that that's the most important thing. What are some other things? There are a lot of them. Give me some other things. Bruce? I'm sorry, what? Getting your driver's license. Okay, that's not one I heard of, but that <laughs> could be. All right. What, uh, other things? Your job, your career, right? That that's, that's the thing that gets all your attention, your time, your energy, that that is the most important thing, right? Uh, so Jesus could say, one thing you lack, quit your job, come and follow me, right? Could we do that? What else? Besides possessions, that's one thing. Career? Anything else? Family, people? I was thinking of house, right? Our home, house, becomes the most important thing in our life. So there are, it's anything in our life that we make into a God. It is not a God in and of itself, but we turn it into a God in our life. And this, this very sincere young man who wanted to do the right thing was brought very gently by Jesus to the realization that he has a false God in his life. And it's that one thing that he lacked in his life, okay? And so it, it behooves us uh, also to, to think about that in our own lives. You know, what, what is it that I turn to, uh, and has it gotten to be too big an emphasis in my life? Is it, is it to the point where it is taking over my life? So there's some good introspection, um, you know, that's, that is needed there, okay? Okay? And as Christians, of course, it's not our things in our life that define us, but it is our, our Savior, Jesus Christ, who defines us in and through our baptism, all right? All right, we'll stop. Any questions on that?
or comments on that lesson. It's a rather short, uh, short gospel lesson. And it's right after this, as I say, that Jesus turns to the disciples and said, it says it's harder for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to be saved. And they panic and say, then who's going to be saved? And Jesus says again, with man, nothing, uh, with, with God, nothing is impossible. With God, it is possible. Okay? And it's only through him that we are saved. Yes? Yes. Come follow me. Okay? And the phrase, and you know, you think about that. Uh, we sit here and read that very casually here in church on Sunday. But what if Jesus came by uh, your place of work and said, come follow me? How many of us would be willing to just drop everything and follow him, like Peter, James, and John, right? The fishermen. And uh, it, that is quite a calling, isn't it? Now, how do we follow him? Obviously not leaving our home or leaving our children or family uh, or leaving our vocation, but we follow him daily, don't we? Through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. He has, uh, we are following him each and every day through faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, quite the opposite, he wants us to be in the world not of the world, but in the world as his lights daily. And we are blessed to be able to do that. Okay? All right. Any other comments or questions? Yes. Come on. Um, Janet? I'm kind of marveling on just the question itself. I mean, for one thing, we don't, nobody does anything to inherit anything. Yeah, okay, yes. The guy that does it. Right, right. And also, was there a lot of talk at that time, like in the synagogues, about eternal? Okay, two questions. Okay, one point, one question. First of all, the, uh, the point that that question that the young man asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life, is kind of a contradictory question, isn't it? Because we don't do anything to get an inheritance, or at least we, unless we somehow finagle something. But, uh, you know, normally we get an inheritance because of being a, a child, an heir of whoever the deceased is, right? So we don't do anything to inherit it. So that you make a good point. That's kind of a, almost a contradictory question. Then the question was, in the synagogues at that time, was there much talk about eternal life? And the answer is yes, there was. But remember, there was a, there was a division of the house. Remember, the Pharisees would believe in, in a resurrection from the dead. And who did not? Sadducees did not. Uh, and in fact, uh, uh, the, uh, the book of Acts, uh, uh, Paul gets them one, at one point into quite a, a spirited uh, discussion and argument between themselves. So yes, there was. And the Sadducees denied uh, a resurrection to eternal life. They also denied the existence of angels and spirits and other things as well. But yes, there was, there was discussion of eternal life at that time in the synagogues. Okay? And in fact, the synagogue was the place. It's a place of prayer. It wasn't like the temple in Jerusalem, but it was a place where Scripture was read. It was sort of a community gathering place. Scripture was read. Scripture was debated back and forth. The rabbis would, would be teaching different groups. It was a very lively place. And synagogues sprung, sprang up all over. Uh, the Holy Land, uh, Capernaum, uh, was a famous one where Jesus actually taught. And there are other places, too, where synagogues sprang up all over. Okay? So a very active, um, uh, vibrant uh, life with the Scriptures. Okay? Any other comments or questions before we go on to the epistle lesson? Finish off with that. All right. Let's go then to the epistle uh, from the book of Hebrews. 
And it's Hebrews 3, starting with verse 12, 12 through 19. Okay, so let's read the whole thing again, then we'll go back and, and pick it up. Okay, so starting at verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. 16. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that he would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. All right, now, this doesn't make a whole lot of sense unless you kind of get the backdrop for what he's saying here. The disobedience and the unbelief refers back to Numbers 13 and 14, when the people of God who were led out of Egypt by Moses, God through Moses, come to finally the promised land, the land that God promised he was going to give to them. He's led them through the wilderness. He's provided for them in the wilderness. Well, first of all, he parted the Red Sea, of course. He takes them out through the wilderness, provides for them. They come right up to the border of the promised land in Numbers 13 and 14. And remember, what did they do when they came up to the border of the Promised Land? They sent in spies, right? And the spies go in to kind of check out the land, and kind of it's kind of like the uh, intelligence operation, right? Before they, they're going to go in and take over this land. So the spies come back, and they come back to the people on the other side of the Jordan. And what do the spies report? Most of them. These people are big. These are big, intimidating people. We better not even try this. And they are shrinking back in fear, except for two guys, Joshua and Caleb. Right, yeah, good. Uh, they are the ones who say, no, the Lord has promised, and, you know, you, we are going to go in. But no, the people shrink back in fear. And after God has done all of this for them and brought them to the very brink of the promised land, they're going to shrink back in fear because the enemy looks quite intimidating. Those people look very intimidating. Okay? So what is God's response then? So this, this is the rebellion that is spoken of in Hebrews. This is the disobedience that is spoken of in Hebrews 3 here. Just to finish out the story, what does God end up uh, saying? Well, first of all, <laughs> God wants to just get rid of these people. He says he's going to basically cut them off and start all over. He says to Moses, he's going to start all over with another people. And it's interesting, when you read in Numbers 13 and 14, Moses intercedes for those people. Moses, in effect, is a foreshadowing of Christ, the, the one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. 
Moses intervenes or uh, mediates for those people. And it's inter- we, won't, we don't have time to read it, but when you read Moses' logic, he says, you know, what, basically, what are people going to say about you and your name? That you cut these people off and you didn't, bring, you didn't fulfill your promise to them and so on. And then God relents and says, all right, I'm not going to wipe them out. But what is going to happen? They're going to have to wander through the wilderness for how long? 40 years in the wilderness. And that no one who is 20 years old or older is going to walk into that promised land. Except Joshua and Caleb, the two men of faith. In fact, Joshua is going to end up leading the people into that promised land. God's going to use him to actually be the the Moses too, I guess you would say, to lead the people in, okay? So this is the rebellion that when you read Hebrews 3, I hope this helps make, make a little sense now. This is what the writer to the Hebrews is referring to when he speaks about the, the evil hearts, the, the disobedience, the rebellion. This is the historical event that he is talking about, okay? All right, we've got to move along here. Uh, so take care, brothers, he says here, lest, you, uh, lest any of you have an evil unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Well, here's a verse we would say that supports the reason, uh, one of the reasons, that we do not, do we believe as Lutherans in a once saved, always saved? In other words, once you have faith in Jesus Christ, you can never fall away. No, in fact, there's one verse right there that makes it pretty clear, right? Uh, That, you know, lest you, as it says there, uh, fall away from the living God. So the idea, the assumption is you, you were with the living God and you're falling away. So we do not believe that once you are saved, you've got it made and don't, you know, again, you can be real complacent with your spiritual life. Don't worry about it. You're, you're in now. And uh, the more, mainly it's the Reformed who would believe that. Uh, Calvin, that's a Calvinistic teaching. That's the called uh, sometimes referred to as the perseverance of the saints. In other words, once you're in, you're in. Now, uh, and, and of course, we see people unfortunately falling away from the faith around us. But uh, what do you think the rejoinder is from uh, Calvinists or Reformed when somebody obviously falls away and doesn't uh, is no longer in the services of God's house and is is off living a unchristian life? What do you think their response is? Yeah, they, were, they weren't there in the first place. They only appeared to be saved, right? So, I mean, it, in the end, it's a circular argument, and it's not something that I would necessarily argue about. But I just want to point out, there, are, there is actual scriptural proof for the fact that you can fall away, all right? But going on, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. And, you know, I think sometimes this is missed. If someone says... I don't have to go to church, or I don't have to be at your church to be a Christian. Is that a true statement? Sure. Yeah. We're not saying that you have to, in fact, just the, just the mechanical act of coming here does not make one a Christian. And it is faith in Jesus Christ that makes one a Christian. But here in this verse, we see one of the great advantages that the body of Christ has in the fact that we exhort one another, we encourage one another, and uh, every day it says here, we exert, uh, exhort one another, and, and of course that's in God's word, we encourage one another in the faith, especially 
in down times, when in challenging times, in hard times, we exhort and encourage one another. And, you know, I've heard people say, oh, I didn't get much out of the church service today, or I didn't get much out of the sermon today. Well, isn't that kind of a selfish way of looking at it? Maybe God had you there that day to say word of encouragement to someone who was down or someone who needed to hear a word from you. So instead of looking at it from a totally consumer type of mentality, what did I get out of it today? We think of the benefit we can offer one another in exhorting one another, encouraging one another. Okay? And notice there, how, uh, as long as it is called today. <laughs> Isn't it kind of a clever way? As long as it's today, which of course every day is going to be on that day, you exhort one another or you encourage one another. That was kind of a clever way of saying it. And uh, that none of you may be hardened. Now, what does it mean to be hardened? A hard heart? What, 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 what would you explain? What's a hard heart? We have that in Scripture quite often. Closed off. Yeah. It, you get the impression that it's not, it's not able to receive anything. Nothing is, it's, it's the opposite of being pliable and receiving. It's callous. It's, it's adult. It's, it's hardened, okay? So that, so that none of you may be hardened, notice they're like a stone, we almost say, not believing, not trusting, uh, by the deceitfulness of sin. And you know, we can tend to believe what is false uh, so easily, people can, and then they become hardened to the truth, just the opposite. And so he says, uh, verse 14, for we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. And, you know, that is the struggle, isn't it? That holding on to that faith to the end. We pray so often in church, even at the death of someone, we say, keep us faithful to the end so that we may join with them in that same heavenly uh, dwelling. So that, and, but here's the, here's the other thing. Will Christ allow us to be snatched away? No. He says, no one can snatch them from my hand. Now, can you decide, turn around and walk away from Christ? Yes. He doesn't force us like robots to follow him. But he will not allow us to be snatched away against our will. Okay? So that's the, that's the good news. Um, let's just see. Uh, let's go quickly here. Verse 15. Uh, today, if you hear his voice, there's that today again. Uh, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. That's, again, that rebellion referring to what happened in Numbers uh, 13 and 14 as they came up to the Promised Land. And then, starting in verse 16, there's five rhetorical questions that he asks here. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left uh, Egypt, led by Moses? What's, is, isn't that kind of ironic? That it's those people who ended up rebelling and walking away. Now, I would, wouldn't you think that if you were there and you saw the Red Sea parted and you went through on dry ground, you saw the soldiers pursuing, and all of a sudden God brings the waters down on them and wipes them out, and then you're walking through the wilderness and, God's, and God is providing for you, would you think that you would, it's kind of an irony in this question, isn't it? Who was it that turned away? It's the people that he did all that for. So what's the warning there for all of us? If those people fell away, could fall away, 
watch yourselves. Don't be complacent, you know. If those people fell away, he's, he's trying to encourage them here to watch yourself, you know. Do not harden your own heart against the truth, okay? And uh, verse uh, 17, and with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Huh, again, the irony, right? The same people that he brought out of slavery. Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? You know, literally, they died there in the wilderness. They ended up dying there in the wilderness. And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, or his, his rest in the promised land? But those who were disobedient, again, those same disobedient people. And uh, they were unable to enter because of their unbelief, okay? So we see that they were unable to enter by their unbelief, okay? So the opposite is true. That's what we are about here as the body of Christ, exhorting and encouraging one another. As long as it's called today, that's what we're doing, okay? <laughs> All right. We're at the end here. Time also, let's close with the benediction. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all. Amen. Thank you.